0: So, another thing we stink at, (laughs) Um, last week we talked about patience, which I think a lot of you were nodding your head through the sermon, afterwards I heard a lot of feedback from people like, yes, patience is like the thing I just am the worst at, Um, I think you don't realize how impatient of a person you are, or how selfish of a person you are until you have children, that is one thing that just basically pushes it out of you, and you kind of realize, wow, that was in there, and I'm not sure I knew that was in there, but now here we are. and so as we are kind of coming to the end of James, we're dealing with a sort of a similar uh, deal that we've kind of talked about through uh, James before. This is really coming down to an issue of pride and an issue of humility. James is calling us to be humble, to reach out to God when we have issues, to reach out to other people, to find humility, and to go there first. Um, but I just wanted to take a second and review some of the things that we've talked about in James as we've worked our way to this point. I mean, it's been one of those books that's been so straightforward, so in your face, that it's very much not a Minnesotan kind of book, which is kind of why we led with it as a church. It's almost been a little bit uh, violent at times. You feel like James is just right here, just giving it to you, and you You kind of like want to look away and you kind of want to be like, I don't want to deal with this right now, but you almost have to. You know, when he talks about looking at yourself in a mirror and then walking away and forgetting what you just saw, it would be as ridiculous to do that as it would be to listen to the truth and then not act on the truth. I mean, that is essentially the core piece of what James is about. It's this wisdom book full of wisdom, but he's right in our face. And some of the things we've talked about, trials and temptations, right? Listening and doing, favoritism. That was everyone's favorite, I'm sure, right? Uh, faith in works, taming the tongue. That's, that one that one hit me hard. Uh, wisdom from above, pride and humility, which we're gonna talk about again today. Relying on God for your future, patience, and then today, prayer and humility. Right? He's, he's led us through uh, a very frank, in your face, dose of truth. Okay, He's definitely been a prophet. He's given us sometimes what we don't wanna hear. And the question is, you know, what has changed in your life as we've been studying through James? So what I would love for everyone to do, this is just a little homework assignment, especially if you're in a small group. I'd love for you to ask the question in your small group this week. What did, what did I learn through James? What was one takeaway that I had while we studied James for the last however many weeks we studied it for? And share as a group together, what's one thing in your life that now looks different, or that's changed the way that you think, that's caused you to look at yourself differently, that's caused you to do something different? I would love for you to share that in your group and and I would love for you to share it with me. Send me an email, send to our office email. You can email me, markpursuitcommunity.church. You know, I'd love to hear what has changed in your life because we've been studying through James. Um, when we study God's word, it should change us. There should be something different about us now that we've been studying through the book of James. So share that with each other, share that with me. I'd love to hear what's going on. But today we're talking about uh, pride again. And James is going to pretty much, um, yeah, that's what I want. He's going to pretty much put it right in our face again. Hey, I'm going to finish this letter out here, but I want to land on something that's incredibly important. This idea that if you are living in, in a self-sufficient way, you are missing what it means to be a Christ follower. That in fact, God calls us in humility to find a level of God dependency that causes us to go to him first to pray to him for the things that we need, and to share those things with other people in our lives. And it takes a sense of humility to be able to do that. We don't love to do this. In fact, we wear it as a badge when we do something ourselves. A couple of the people that I follow on uh, on uh, YouTube, uh, one of these guys is a dude from the woods of Russia, somewhere way out there on his own. He goes out into the woods every summer by himself. He builds his own incredibly huge log cabin. He'll, so he he falls a tree on his own. He takes all the branches off of it. He gets it into place using all these weird old methods. And over summer, over summer, over summer, this thing is built up into a full-on wilderness cabin where he lives and goes by himself for like three months of the year. And I hang on every episode. How in the world is this guy going to move this gigantic log on his own? And he has engineering tricks that allow him to do things that he should never be able to do on his own. He builds his own kayak. He takes in only limited supplies, and he lives off the land most of the time that he's there. It's incredible. In fact, his original YouTube is all in uh, Russian, and then they've translated it to uh, American, to English. <laughs> I am one of those Americans, aren't I? And I love it. I cannot get enough of it. Okay, there's another guy I watch. Uh, he's I think he's from Wisconsin. He's from somewhere around here. He, uh, he snowmobiles out into the wilderness, and he's built a sled that he pulls behind his uh, snowmobile, and essentially it's a a standalone kind of cabin that he just drags around the wilderness with himself. So he'll just go out for two or three days, a weekend at a time, and just disappear. I'm sure his wife loves that. I don't know what situation this guy's living in that he can do it. We love this kind of stuff, man. When we build something ourselves, when we put effort into something, we feel good about it at the end of the day when we could say, we did this. Okay, but there's a line that we cross, where we start to live on our own, we start to live apart from community, we start to live apart from God's, you know, what he's willing to give us. And I think there are a lot of Christians out there who are saying, I love Jesus and I like being part of community, but actually I don't want to let God into the things that I'm doing and I take sort of pride in the fact that I'm leading my family well and I'm living a moral life and I'm doing it on my own. And I don't really want to let people around me in on the stuff that's going on in my life. I don't really want to share with anyone. I want to be on my own. I take pride in it. And I'm afraid to let people in. I don't necessarily want to do that. There's a pride that comes along with this American rugged individualism, with this Minnesotan, I got this kind of thing. Anybody follow me? We take pride in that. We wear it as a badge. We, put it, we pin it on our chest. We say, look how great I am. You know, we look at it as weakness when people need other people or when they need to go and throw themselves on the mercies of God. We see it as weakness. Sometimes we look at it and we think, well, I don't really want to be a bother to other people. Or we think, I don't really want to burden God. I can take care of this on my own. And that, James says, is a recipe for disaster. In fact, one of the things that we're studying about Gen Z and millennials especially, those of you who are younger than millennials... Is that many of, of your peers, maybe since you're sitting in a church, I won't tell you that you're doing this, many of your peers are walking away from church. They don't see a need for community and they don't see a need to have God in their lives until they're absolutely desperate and in need. This is a major issue for us, the same way it was for the church then, okay? And so here's what James he says in verse 13, Is any among you in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And so he starts with the idea that we should be prayerful in all situations, that when things are awful, that we should obviously turn to God and we should pray. And when things are also amazing, we should turn to God and we should sing songs of praise. He sets up kind of this, this continuum where here's where everything is awful, everything's going downhill. Here's where all the stuff is going wrong, falling apart. everything's coming apart at the seams. Here's where everything's amazing. Here's where it's not negative 400 degrees. Here's where I can actually, you know, my, my family relationships seem to be going the right direction. Financially, we seem to be doing okay. Things at work are going all right. My, you know, things are going well. There's this continuum. You'll find yourself somewhere on this continuum all the time. Like you probably could step back and go, I'm a little closer to calling out to God in a, a dark place. Or I'm a little closer to calling out to God in, a, in an amazing place. But either way, James says we should be praying to God when we need to and singing songs of praise when we, when we should be. That in fact, always the first thing on our lips should be prayer. Always the first thing on our lips should be thanking God and asking him to be involved in whatever situation we find ourselves in. That there is no place where we find ourselves where we don't call out to God and ask for his mercies or call out to God and thank him for what he's been doing in our lives. That this is a, a, a state that we find ourselves in as Christians Things are bad, we cling to God. And when things are good, we sing songs of praise to God. There are different types of prayers all through Scripture, right? People at their depths, some of the most powerful prayers in Scripture are people who are there, who are lamenting, who are saying, why, God? What are you doing, God? Show me what's going on here, God. Show me your presence. Show me where you're active. Let me see what's happening. Crying out and throwing themselves God. Some of the places that we see, you know, in Psalms where we're we're singing praises to God, we're calling out his goodness, those are places where sometimes we find ourselves in a better place. But this continuum is where we all are and we're called to pray no matter where we are. Then, in fact, we can have joyful prayers and prayers of lament. And they're all still part of our relationship with God. It's just like our relationship with other people, right? There are times when things are going great and we feel like we're on the same page and we're connecting and it's like beautiful. If you're in, if you're in a marriage, you have a girlfriend or boyfriend, if you have a best friend, if you have a family member, th- those relationships, you'll find yourself on a continuum somewhere. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're terrible, right? The, the connection is the thing that's important to continue to try to work on those things and continue. That's what James is telling us, to continue to connect with God. And you know what? A self-sufficient person won't do this. A self-sufficient person won't cry out to God when they need to, and they won't be thankful when they need to. A self-sufficient person says, like, I I can handle this. God, take care of somebody else. Or, God, hey, how about you handle that thing, and I'll work on this thing. Okay? Self-sufficiency is the enemy to humility. A wise person will, in humility, go to Jesus first. And the question is, why don't we do this, right? And I think sometimes we don't do this because we don't want to bother God. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I think if you actually got to the core of why some people don't pray, it's because they really honestly don't want to bother God with their stuff, which is a ridiculous thing to think, but sometimes we fall into that trap. We don't want to be a burden on other people, and we don't want to be a burden on God. So we're willing to thank him when he does things, and we're willing to pray when things are good, but when we find ourselves in tough spots, we try to work our way out of it. And you've done this before, probably, with community as well. You've said something or thought something like, well, I should probably go to church when I get things together, or I should probably thank God when I get this thing fixed, but it's my thing that caused this. It's my sin that caused this. I got myself into this situation, and I should get myself out of it. That's the way we think. Sometimes we get ourselves into a situation where we're, we have to call out to God. Then we're dr- brought to a place of humility because we're brought low. We should be requesting God's presence in that situation before we find ourselves with humility forced upon us. We should choose humility. right? Humbleness, humility, is something we ought to choose, not something we want forced upon us. And so we don't want to bother God. So we say, I got this. right? Which is funny because... We do this uh, in a different way when it comes to evangelism. So those of you who I've asked to have a personal conversation with somebody, invite them to church this week, often we pray, God, will you reach this person? And God responds with, "Um, yeah, that's why you know them. (laughs) Calling you to do it. Why don't you go do it? And we do the opposite with prayer sometimes. We say, um, I don't really want to ask God to fix this because I should do it. See, we apply self-sufficiency to the wrong things. In fact, we should ask God to use us in those moments where he's called us to step into something and not to pray for him to do something miraculous, but for him to use us in a miraculous way. And then when it comes to prayer, we should throw ourselves on his mercy. We should have it the same way in both places. God, use me. To, to reach somebody else. And in situations where we find ourselves leaning towards self-sufficiency, we go the other direction. We ask God to be in that moment, to take over that thing, to show us what it looks like, you know, to have change in our lives through our relationship with him. And so we, we, just, we just don't pray. And there's another reason why we don't pray. So there's, there's really, I think, two main ones. One is that we don't want to be a burden to God. The other is that we don't believe prayer will do anything. I think this is a struggle for a lot of people. And I know that there have been moments in my life where I felt like when I was praying, I was literally speaking to Jesus who was standing right next to me. And there's been moments in my life where I was praying and I felt like I was praying and it was just bouncing back. Maybe it hits the ceiling. That's about as far as it goes. And God's out there somewhere and he's not paying attention. I think we've all been in that moment where we've said, God, I need you here in this thing. I need you to fix this thing. I need you to change this thing. And God doesn't necessarily change or do the thing that we want him to do. And so we start to turn him off. And we start to, you know, I don't want to get my hopes up that he's going to listen or that he's going to step into this thing or that he's going to change this thing. And so then we just find ourselves not even praying at all because we don't think it has any value. And that's real. I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. And, you know, there's a couple things that we talked about a little bit last week where, you know, Jesus calls his disciples to continue to pray even when things aren't being responded to the way that you think they should be, that he called his uh, disciples to pray and to persevere in prayer and to continue to pray, right, even when it wasn't being responded to the way that you thought it should or handled the way that you thought it should, but to persevere. He told his disciples, essentially, I'm going to not respond to the things that you pray sometimes, and you're going to be frustrated, but I'm, I'm calling you to persevere in prayer, right? And then there's another section where he talks about prayer, and he says there, there's essentially a, a person who has a neighbor, right, so someone comes uh, to them in the middle of the night, uh, someone from a faraway land, and they're hosting. And in, in uh, Jewish culture, if you were hosting somebody, it was a very high value. You wanted to put out your best stuff. You wanted to make sure you were ready. You wanted to give out. I've, uh, I've experienced this in Mexico. They have this, this, sort of, um, this sort of same culture. When you go to Mexico, right, uh, I spent some time living with a family while I was on a trip doing uh, missions there. The family, if you, if you like say, hey, that's a really nice painting on the wall, they take it down and try to give it to you. Right? Like when you show up at their house, they want to give you their best stuff. They put out their best stuff. Right? They want, to, they want to honor you as their guest. They cleared their kids out of their rooms and gave me a queen-size bed in this house. Like it was amazing. Right? So they have this culture of hospitality. The Jews had this culture of hospitality. And so Jesus tells a story where someone comes to somebody in the middle of the night and they're not prepared and they don't know what to do. Right? And they're like, I have this friend who came to my house, and I don't have anything ready for them, and I don't know what to do with the, with them, but I have to find a way to give them what they need. And so it says the one neighbor goes next door to the other neighbor and starts knocking on the door and trying to get a hold of the neighbor to wake up. And the neighbor says, dude, stop knocking on the door. My family is asleep, right? Back then, there wasn't like 10 rooms in the house. This wasn't a three-bedroom rambler, okay? This was like a one-room shack. Everybody was sleeping in the same room, Right? Maybe you had like a some kind of quasi curtain or something. There's just there's just no privacy. Everybody's in the same room. And so he's telling the neighbor, stop knocking on the door, you're gonna wake up my kids. Like, hey dummy, it's in the middle of the night. Go home, go to sleep. You know, maybe he's thinking like this guy's crazy. Maybe he had too much to drink tonight. I don't know why he, he he goes he drunk knocks down the neighborhood whenever he gets, you know, like I don't know what the story is, but it says Thanks, that was good. Hey, at least I got one. Uh, it's like First century drunk texting, okay? Uh, He says, because he is so audacious, the neighbor gets up and gives him what he needs. He goes around to the side, starts knocking on the windows, and he won't give up, and he keeps going to the neighbor saying, give me what I want, give me what I need. I need you to get up and give me something so I can put it in front of this visitor I have. Jesus tells the story, and he says, God is like a father who wants to give you good gifts. He's not playing a game where that when you ask for one thing, he gives you something else and laughs at you. And in fact, he's like a father who wants to give you the things that you're asking for. Now, I know it's tough to understand that until you are a parent, but there is nothing that my kids ask me for that I wouldn't move heaven and earth to try to give them. And there are things sometimes I don't give them because it's not good for them, and I don't give them because we don't have what they need. All right? My kid wants to... Go on a 10 day vacation to Disney World. It's like, well, this year we're going to plant a church. Let's see about what happens next year. <laughs> right? This, this is God. This is what He does. So when we, we don't pray, it's because we've, we've given up. We've said, like, maybe God doesn't do anything and prayer doesn't move anyone. And Jesus tells us that we should pray continually and persevere in prayer and that we should ask audaciously. In other words, go knock on the windows in the middle of the night to a Father who wants to give you good gifts. That in fact, you should pray for the heart of a father whenever you pray for someone. And I, I know you've been in this situation where you've maybe hedged your prayer or you said, you know, you know God, like uh, I know that you can do something in this situation, but, but, you know, we're, but we know that you don't always, you know, no. Jesus says you should pray the heart of a father's will for the person who you're praying for. And when you pray for yourself, that you should pray the heart of a father's will. And sometimes the father is gonna say no or he's gonna say wait. But he says, keep coming, keep praying audaciously, continue to do this. And it matters, and it changes God's heart and mind. So sometimes we just don't pray because we don't believe God's going to do anything. But it feels like Jesus is telling us he wants us to do that. That, in fact, we should continue to pray in that way. And that sometimes we won't get what we're asking for. But we need to continue to pray the Father's heart, the Father's will, and to continue to persevere in prayer. All right, verse 14, he says, Is any of you among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Okay, so much is happening in this verse. First of all, if any of you is sick, and that word sick, it literally means like close to death. Okay, so he's saying if any of you is really struggling, you should do something very... uh, do something in incredible faith and humility by asking the elders to come and pray for you and anoint you with oil. In other words, you, when you're struggling, should seek out other people and specifically seek out the leaders in your church to pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. It doesn't say the elders should come find you when you're sick and that they should bring oil and pray. There's a, there's a part of faith that happens in reaching out to someone else and asking them to come and pray for you that is part of what James is telling us to do. That we shouldn't be so self sufficient and so full of pride that we don't lay aside our pride and, in humility, invite other people to come and carry the burden with us. Right? If you're struggling, I will show up at your house and anoint you with oil and pray over you. That is a guarantee. If you come to us and you say, I need some leaders to come over to my house and pray with me, we will be there 100%. But the thing that James is telling us to do is to reach out, not to allow your self-sufficiency to kick in and not to, you know, cry yourself a river when no one comes to you. Okay, the the humility in this is saying, I don't have this and I need other people in my life right now. The humility is, is reaching out and saying that. So there's that, okay? There's also uh, some other stuff going on. So he says that we should anoint people with oil. And we think that that's something very special or different. And now, I listen, I know that there's this whole essential oil subculture out there. I don't want to get myself in trouble. Yeah, this is very difficult territory. Um, you guys are a bunch of quacks, okay? I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> Rub this thing on your machine and you'll feel it. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Diffuse some oil. It smells good. Changes the the mood and the feel of the room. I'm with you on that. Beyond that, you're on your own. Uh, There's nothing special about the oil here. The special thing that is going on here is that oil in the Bible is uh, something that is used to set someone apart. That when David is told that he's going to be the next king of Israel, they anoint him with oil. He's set apart to the place that he's been called to serve. That when someone comes over and anoints you with oil, they are setting you apart to God's will. We are essentially, we're saying, God, you be at work in this situation. You receive glory from this person. If this works out great, then we will glorify you. And if it doesn't work out great, then we will still glorify you. That you'll be set apart to God's will. You ask someone else to enter into it with you and to be present in that moment with you and to anoint you with oil. There's nothing special about it. By the way, if somebody wants to make me some anointing oil, you know, go online, find a recipe. I'm all about that. You oil people out there, get, get at me. And what he's saying about prayer here is look, you are part of a church. Thank God that you have elders because you can't do this alone. In fact, what God has already given you is people in your life that you can go to and ask. As long as you're part of a community of people who love you and love Jesus, you'll never be alone when you're dealing with difficult things. This is not prescriptive. The the, the will make a sick person well prayer is actually talking about sins if you look at it. He's saying, when someone comes to pray for you and anoint you with oil, the first thing they should do is share the gospel with you and pray for your soul and pray for the spiritual side of what's happening in your life and ask God to be at work in your life and your sins will be forgiven in that moment when you turn them over to God in the presence of another person who's entering into it with you. He's also saying, then go ahead and ask for all the things that you want, the Father's will in that moment. But he's not saying that there's something special about a prayer or that it will always make a sick person well. He's saying you will always have your sins forgiven when someone's with you to pray over you in that moment. That if you lead with the gospel and then get to the things that need to be prayed over, that that's the way it should look. He says when we pray, we may be physically healed, but we can always be cleansed spiritually. This kind of prayer is about inviting others into it with you. And it says the Lord will raise them up, not us, not the elder who comes over, not the person who you share it with in your small group, not the person at the prayer table. The Lord is the one who lifts them up. We intercede for people. We pray on their behalf, but God is the one who does the work. Jesus is the one who is glorified in every time that we pray with and for someone. And we always pray the Father's heart. Continue to pray that always. He goes on verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another sorry, to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And again, we have something going on here where we think like, is there something different about the prayer of a righteous person? Well, I want to say yes and no. Jesus calls us to be righteous people. My question to you is how many righteous people do you have in your life that you could ask to pray for you when you are struggling? There isn't anything special about any one person that when Jesus sets us apart to be holy and he makes us righteous and he calls us to pray for other people, that that's an effective and powerful prayer that comes out of the life of someone who lives like that. And if you don't have anyone in your life who you are in an intimate relationship with who is righteous, you need to step back and say, where are the people in my life that I could go to and receive this kind of prayer from? If you've run away from the church, if you're not entering into community, if you don't have those people, then you don't have them when you need them. And you may have grown up with a person who had the uh, office of listening to people's sins or hearing their confession. And I want you to know there is no biblical grounding for that idea. And in fact, scripture tells us that we have one mediator between us and God and it is Jesus Christ. He's the The high priest, he is the one that hears our confession and he is the one that gives us forgiveness of sin. And we don't go to a person to receive forgiveness of sin. We go to Jesus to receive forgiveness of sin. But when we ask other people to join us in those moments, something very special happens where that person is able to physically give you that mercy that Jesus is giving you, is physically able to enter into that problem that you're dealing with, is physically able to bring peace into that moment and healing on behalf of Jesus, okay? If you've grown up in a situation where you only went to the priest to give your confessional, that is not a biblical idea. Jesus is the priest you are looking for. He's the one who hears the confession. And he calls us to confess to each other the sins that we have in our life because sin is very powerful when it is in the dark And it has no power when we drag it into the light. When we continue to carry it on our own and we don't let anyone else into it, then it continues to fester and be a problem. When we drag it into the light and we say, I'm not okay. I've got stuff going on. I need your help. We're able to receive the help from people around us. And in humility... We're able to go first and share stuff. And you know what happens this, in groups all the time? Someone takes a step and shares something really difficult or really straightforward or really just kind of stark in the middle of the group or in the right situation with a couple of people who are the same gender or whatever. And you know what happens? Everybody else feels comfortable doing it too. In fact, everybody's carrying something and no one feels comfortable doing it until somebody finally goes first. We're supposed to do this for each other. We're supposed to confess our sins to one another so we can drag things into the light and allow God to heal those things and allow people to hold us accountable and for us to encourage one another as we become more righteous, more what God has called us to be. And so who will you call on when you need to confess your sins? Hey, I need help. I screwed up. I did this wrong. I'm in trouble. I can't get out of this pattern. I can't figure out what victory looks like in this moment. I'm failing as a parent, I'm failing in this place, I'm failing in that place, my marriage is in trouble. Where are you going to confess those things to other people who love you and care for you and want the best for you and will walk with you and will carry the burden with you? That's what community looks like. That's what our church needs to be about. But you're going to have to find humility to go there. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops and so he gives us an example of Elijah and if you're like me you're like rolling your eyes Elijah that's your example James can you give me like could you use like I don't know somebody who I feel more like like could we talk about Peter right who screwed up big time and then was restored could we talk about any of the disciples who messed up and then found themselves back in a relationship he uses Elijah Elijah like is to me it's like yeah he was incredible yes he he did crazy things for God, of course, but he actually says Elijah was just a regular person. So he actually is trying to tell us, yeah, we have this person we put up on a pedestal, but Elijah was a regular human being just like you, and he struggled too, and there are moments in Elijah's journey where you see him lamenting, where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? Am I left here by myself? There are moments where he is winning on this mountaintop, and there are moments where he is in the valley. He's a regular human being. It says, even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And you're like, well, there it is. I don't know how to pray earnestly. He prayed earnestly. That sounds really holy or something different. He said some special magical words that got God's attention better. You know what that translates to? It's a really terrible translation. It says He prayed prayer. That's what it means. Essentially saying he prayed. There isn't anything special about Elijah. Elijah was willing to be humble and allow God to use him when he had called him to do incredible things and said, yeah, God used him to basically bring famine and (laughs) no rain to the land for three and a half years and then to turn the water on to prove something, to prove that God was in control. And the same thing is available to us. I think sometimes we think that the miracles don't happen anymore. Well, it seems like in Jesus' day they happen all the time. It seems like Jesus prayed for miracles all the time. It seems like miracles were happening. This isn't There is no place where it says the miracle's now turned off, that they're not happening anymore. If you're praying the Father's heart for other people, you're praying for a miracle every time you open your mouth to pray for someone. Why can't God use us the way that he used Elijah? That's the example that James gives. He goes on, he says in verse 19, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So here he tells us, don't pray about it, just go get them. By the way, you need to pay attention to who's missing, to know who to go get. And when we offer that prayer, God, I really hope this person comes back, or I really hope that they find their way into the faith, or I really hope that you do something in their life, James is saying, go do it. Go get them. Don't let them walk away. Don't let them wander from community. Don't let them isolate themselves in self-sufficiency. Go and call them to humility. Go and drag them back into community. Go and don't let them wander from the faith and wander from community and wander from God in their own arrogance and their own self-sufficiency. Bring them back because that's what this is all about. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. If you turn them from the way that they are walking. And you bring them back into the fold. God can now use them. So instead of death that they were creating in their life and in others. Now they can create life in their, uh, in their, in their church and in their community. The opposite of what they were doing can happen. If you will go and get them. I think prayer is sometimes one of those things that we're uncomfortable with. We don't know what to do. We're not sure about. Prayer essentially, when Jesus taught us to pray, I mean, he essentially told us, look, it's not that hard. There's a a sense of you bringing heaven, bringing God's way into this moment. You entering into it with a person. You praying on behalf of your church, on behalf of your community, on behalf of other people. You are bringing heaven to this moment when you get a chance to do that. We're going to finish with a song here. We're going to sing Let Heaven Break Through Again. And what I would challenge us to do is to consider where it is that we've been prideful, where it is that we've said, I'm self-sufficient, where it is that we've said, I'm not sharing this with community, I'm not offering this to any other person, where it is we've not offered the prayer to God because we don't believe he can do it or wants to. And I would challenge you to think about what that looks like this week in your small group, what it looks like after service at our prayer area, what it looks like for you to sit down with someone and confess your sins to them, what God might be doing and calling you to in humility. Because that is one of the things in this book is that James is saying we have to break the pride, break the arrogance, break the self-sufficiency, and enter into humility. That essentially we get a chance to bring heaven into those conversations with people, into the communities that we're part of, into the world that we live in, if we'll find the humility to do so let me pray. God, would you just, would you break us of pride? Would you help us to see that you are a God who loves us? And in fact, you want this relationship with us, this life-giving relationship, that you, you want us to know what it means to come to you in prayer You don't want us to live isolated, self-sufficient lives, but you want us to rely on other people and to rely on you. Would you show us the errors of our ways, the places where we haven't brought it up with you because we're afraid or we don't think you want to do anything about it? Can you show us the places in our lives we haven't talked with anyone else about it? We've essentially carried it in a self-sufficient way and kept it in the dark. God, would you help us to bring those things out into the light and to share those in community? God, would you use us as we find humility? And would our prayers be powerful? Would we find righteousness and holiness in our relationship with you? And when we pray for people, God, would it bring heaven into that moment, into their lives, into the community that we pray for? And would you use us, God, in that way, to bring heaven to this place? In Jesus' name, amen.